Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. You know what? This right here, if I, if I may say so myself, mm-hmm. is, is a shining example of what you and I can do if we are given 24 hours just like anybody else. Just like Jack Bauer. Just, <laughs> we could... We, yeah, that's right. We have saved the world with this podcast episode. Yeah. Well, tell the people what happened, Jeff. So we got a message from Ross's manager yesterday yeah. saying, hey... Teflon Don's 10-year anniversary is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Would you guys like to talk to Rick Ross? We said, I mean, of yeah, course. Absolutely. Like, yeah. This and, is going to be great. And so we had a great conversation with him. Yep. A lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground. And then you and I and our other brother, Dan, went for a bike ride. Yes. And at the end of that bike ride, you were like, hey, <laughs> what if we added <laughs> a half dozen more people to talk to? And I was like, Sure. Yeah. You know. And actually, you know what? We we wanted to get a full picture of this album, of the album process. Um, we reached out to more than a half dozen people. I'd say we reached out to probably like a dozen or maybe fifteen people because we wanted to give a a a true oral history of Teflon Don from the people who were really there and uh, and add some color to to Rick Ross's palette. And I think we did a pretty excellent job. So today on the podcast is not only Rick Ross. We have Lex Luger. <laughs> we have uh, Jadakus. We have Styles. We have Chris Atlas, who was running marketing for Def Jam and now is running marketing for Warner Records. We have Spiff TV, who was Rick Ross's right-hand man, A&R, and, uh, and also his video guy. And we have John Caramanica. John Caramanica, the lead pop critic over at the New York Times. And host of the world famous podcast. I do not want to give any time over <laughs> to a competing podcast. I am the Jack Bauer of uh, this I have, podcast. I have a question, just real quick. Yeah. Sort of off topic, but sort of on topic. Mm-hmm. Where's the Kid Cuddy podcast? Where's the Cuddy cast? Oh, you want to know what? <laughs> Where's the pod cutty? Yeah. Where is it? I'm just curious, Jeff. Again. <laughs> no shine? No shine. Also, the fact that Kid Cuddy comes out and he's like, I want to give like, you know, I want to I want to do a positive yeah. podcast yeah. about yeah. hip hop and yeah. I'm like, that's our that's our thing. <laughs> you can't come into this space. I'm going to I'm going to go negative on you. This is our lane. Yeah. But you know what? We so were, fuck that. We're, fuck that dude. <laughs> fuck his stupid podcast. Yo, shout out to uh, all of Rick Ross's team, all of Rick Ross's friends, all the people who we reached out to who were there at a moment's notice. We appreciate you all. Um, I think everyone who listens to this is really going to appreciate it because it's a it's a fun retelling of simply a fantastic album that that lives and uh, and you can listen to it to this day. It is powerful stuff. It is hard-hitting stuff it's fun stuff and um i just i really enjoyed this episode and and i i know you guys will too i would like to say too jeff Mm -hmm. that we have had a very exciting week because we sent off the t-shirt designs that you drew Mm -hmm. for our three new t-shirts which are available at it's thereal.com slash shop and are going to be returned to us when they are printed and sent out immediately to everybody who clicked pre-order at it's the slash shop and we were only able to do that because the response was so so big so overwhelming um but you know what no nothing is overwhelming anymore we have brought together this podcast this wasn't the hardest hours. thing no <laughs> this is this wasn't the hardest thing we've ever done the quarantine radio for two and a half months jeff was 
Are, are you talking about fucking the original quarantine radio? I'm talking about the quarantine radio that has no hosts that have possibly <laughs> shot anybody else. <laughs> what happened to the positive energy around? It's my birthday week. I'm podcast. allowed to go negative. Let's... Happy early birthday to Jeff and to Dan. Yeah. Uh, real quick, before we get into this episode, I do want to mention that we have a Patreon. People should know what Patreon is. Everybody knows what Patreon is. If you don't know, it is the only fans for podcasts. <laughs> it is. Uh, something that I believe almost everybody has already. Uh, Patreon.com slash It's The Real is where you can go for hours. Uh, go there, contribute, be part of this movement. We'd really appreciate it. And thank you. And shout out to everybody who is currently a patron of ours. And uh, we really love seeing all of you guys in the Zoom. Yep. We love seeing you guys respond to the newsletters that Jeff sends out. And um, we just love this community that we are building. Yeah, Patreon.com slash it's the real. Well, especially right now, because like obviously times are tough. And so like, um, yeah, we just appreciate it always, but we appreciate it especially now. Jeff, when do you want to get into this episode? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Extra Yasin Bay, a.k.a. Most Definitely. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Getting in that box, a.k.a. Dating on Zoom. Yo, what's up? It's the biggest boss in the game, a.k.a. Tempe Shorty, a.k.a. <laughs> Renzel. <laughs> yes, yeah, your third favorite podcast to waste time with It's The Real. Rose, what's happening? You already know my brothers was good with you. Everything's good. Yo, for, actually, I want to say this correctly. New York Times best-selling Rose, what's happening? Man, you already know what it is. I got to salute my homie Neil. That New York Times bestseller, make sure y'all pick that up. That's a hell of a handsome picture of myself on the cover, <laughs> I must admit. Hurricanes. Yo, uh, so that was the last time we saw you when you were about to drop Hurricanes. You were about to drop uh, Port of Miami, too. But here today, we want to celebrate uh, the 10th anniversary of your, we believe, and I think a lot of people believe, your classic, classic, classic album, Teflon Don, so let's get into it. Let's take it back 10 years, back to, you know, 2009, 2010. Rick Ross coming off of, this is going to be your fourth album. You're coming off of three number ones. What was your, where was your head at? What was your, like, message that you wanted to put out with Teflon Don? And what was your relationship with uh, Def Jam, your record label at the time, like? I mean, as far as the message was basically... Me predicting where I would be if I if I remained alive, I would be number one. I would be more successful than my adversaries. I would be um, in a solid um, position, and shit, I may have even surpassed that. Mm. You know what I mean? As far as where I was at, you know, space wise with Def Jam, Def Jam was moving. Um, a bit slow for me. That was the reason for mixtapes such as Rich Forever. It's because I could release a project and four months later I would have another album ready, which which is understandable. Um, of course, your last album still selling Rosé. That's cool, but we got to do something else because I want to speed up this process. I'm not like these other every three year artists that's that's on this lineup. I want to release music every nine months, no more than a year. Mm. You know, and uh, which is, you know, I'm still that way to, you know, now. Yeah. You know, so uh, ain't nothing changed. But, you know, other than that, I told motherfuckers I was coming in the game. I wouldn't take a loss. You know, I would climb to, uh, climb to the mountaintop, you know, with the hustle, with the flows, with the production, with the way I moved. And here I am. So that's why when you put out Albert Anastasia, like the, the mixtape, like three months beforehand, 
you have those three singles all on the project. I mean, what was Def Jam's uh, reaction when you put all those, like, those heavy hitters, which are Super High, which are BMF, and MC Hammer, you put all that on that free project? Uh, I really didn't care what Def Jam felt like, because um, you got to understand, when you're moving at the pace I'm moving at, it's more about the temperature of the streets than uh, timing in advance. It's more about walking up in venues and them motherfuckers, um, you know, it'd be so packed in there that if someone had corona back then, we <laughs> all would have it. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's what I was doing with the music, with, with those mixtapes. To me, it was more about the temperature. It was more about the streets yeah. than the record label or a seven-figure advance. Ross's methods were tried and true. When the streets move, so does the building. And for a look through Def Jam's eyes, we got on the phone with Chris Atlas, who just today was promoted to executive VP of Urban Music and Marketing for Warner Records and a decade ago was running marketing at Def Jam. Chris, where was Ross at after his third album, Deeper Than Rap? With Deeper Than Rap, like he was, you know, kind of embattled, if you will, in terms of, you know, his status in hip hop, you know, his credibility as an artist. Yeah. And between Deeper Than Rap going into Albert Anastasia, which actually was like one of the hottest mixtapes on the streets at that time, the the heat from Albert Anastasia just continued to bleed into, you know, cementing his status as truly a Teflon Don, um, not only just within music, but just in, in culture. Well, how long did you have the title Teflon Don in mind? Because it was actually featured on the artwork for for Albert Anastasia. Like you see it on there. It's like this is the precursor to Teflon Don. Right, right. I was letting people know I was untouchable. You know what I'm saying? And I would remain untouchable. That And that, that was the reason for a lot of the moves I was making, a lot of diss records I was making, a lot of... I, I really just wanted to shake up the industry and make it clear that um, I wasn't really impressed by too many people you know and the people i was impressed by the most i was collaborating with the most mm. you know ross do you read reviews like when the new york times writes about you when the washington post writes about you when like vibe or double xl or source when people when people you know write up your albums are you right in there checking to see like what kind of rating it gets i believe all artists read reviews but um there there may be some to each artist that's more meaningful than others. You know, there may be uh, motherfuckers who got reviews that, oh, fuck them. <laughs> you know, and then, and then there's certain people that you, you, you do be concerned about. Yeah, so I mean, like, who are those people for you? And see, that's, that's, a, that's a different thing. I believe my energy um, for that is created around when the whirlwind of the album is being released. You understand? I believe that's happening within those 30 days of that, that album release. Mm. You know, what is this writer? What is this writer feel? What does this one feel? You know, and, and as far as the actual sound and quality of my album, I really don't question that. The only thing that's that question for me is what is this uh, specific person doing? 
What is my two homies doing now? Now it's the real. What is, you know, this and that. That'll be more concerning to me. And to take a considered look back at Teflon Don, we called up John Caramonica, the New York Times pop music critic, who in 2010 said this project establishes Ross as one of rap's most potent and creative forces. He's a ferocious character, an impressive rapper, and, as heard on this strong album, a clever and loose thinker willing to try out new poses. John, what are your thoughts in re-listening 10 years later? Well, okay, so first, this is my number one album of 2010. Pretty pretty good, I yeah. Back, I went back, I double-checked. <laughs> I'm so glad that you one. mentioned that because, like, we had no idea. So this is a very, this <laughs> yeah, a very good get well, by us. Someone on this call did research. <laughs> um, so, okay, here's the important thing. This record is so lustrous, right? It's so it's so enveloping the aspect of it, the demeanor of it. These are things that feel like, frankly, seven lifetimes ago. This yeah. album, yeah. These songs, the richness, the dense, puffed up classicness of it. If you think about what's happening in hip hop right now, what has been happening the last two or three years, I mean, there's nothing that even approaches the grandeur, the majesty of this record. What did you think of Rick Ross beforehand? Did you think of him more of a, as a, as a caricature or uh, as a fully formed rapper? And what did this record mean? I think the, the, the previous record was the one where he really, really blossomed. Um, and I actually remember having kind of a disagreement with uh, Joey IE about this because Joey IE was like, Rick Ross has been great since basically before Port of Miami. Right. And I, I, I didn't, I wasn't totally sold on it, but I felt like on Deeper Than Rap, that's where the, the, the verses got really intricate. That's where, because that Deeper Than Rap, if you remember, came right after um, the the issue with the uh, correction officer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Had been made public. Uh, so Deeper Than Rap basically had to be transcendent. So in order to sort of like kind of remain above water, even the rap had to be excellent. And it was a very, very good record. This album is what you get when you've basically overcome what will probably be the, the biggest tribulations of your public facing career succeeded. Um, you know, there's an audacity on Teflon Don. There's a kind of uh there's no uncertainty here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is just, this is just a, a huge by a huge personality with action and thoughtful lyrics that are also just completely boastful and delivered super deadpan. Yeah. Just an incredible combination of things. Ross, in that process of recording, do you have a specific album in mind that you look to as a classic that you aspire to and that you listen to and sort of compare your project to that and see if it's ready? No, I don't do that. I don't I don't go back in time and compare projects and do like that. Uh, you know, I got to stay ahead of the game. I can't go back and try to relive a moment. That's done. We've made history with that. Those are photos that's hung on the wall that, that could never be taken down. Now we got to create that new energy and that new vibe. So so 11, 11 songs on this project, that's what spoke to you at that time. It didn't matter to, to, you know, fulfill like 18 records. You didn't need to have it down to like 10 records. Just uh, these 11 specific ones meant the most to you. Um, like I say, I go based off the, the, the temperature of the streets. And where the streets was at, 
I was already the hottest artist in the streets. The streets was ready for the project then, but I wasn't. So these the records that's um, that's going to solidify this moment, this moment in time, this history. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Along with this Albert Anastasia on the street, along with all the features I was on at that time, I felt these were the records that were going to solidify me being a tough London. One of the biggest releases of 2010 for me and for a lot of people was the Albert Anastasia mixtape, which had Ross's first three singles on there. It was a bigger sound for a guy already known for big sound, and the architect of all that was Spiff TV, who was quickly rising from Ross's videographer to A&R and overall right-hand man. We got Spiff on the line. Spiff, tell me about the Albert Anastasia mixtape. That's what really set the fire, 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 everything on fire, because on that tape was BMF. I got I did fuck, fucking shooting. Oh, let's do a remix with Puff, Walker, and Ross in Atlanta. I directed that video, and while I was out there, I was just like hearing like you know this hard in the pain beat. I'm like, who the fuck is this kid that's producing these beats? You know what I'm saying? So I ended up tracking them down. That was MySpace times. It was Lex Luger. Lex Luger's 808s and the way he put his drums together would soon become the dominant sound in hip-hop rather than just a regional one, thanks in big part to his collaborations with Ross. We have Lex on the line now. Lex, what did the records MC Hammer and BMF mean to you? Uh, it, man, those two records were life changers for me, man. Um, you know, I was working with Waka Flocka at the time, and, you know, neither one of us was big as Rick Ross, you know, the albums and the, the stamp that he had made in hip hop. Uh, so when those two records dropped, man, it just, it really changed my life, honestly, man. That's, that that really, like you said, put my stamp in the game and, you know, the GOAT started to respect me and, uh, man, it was just an eye-opener to what I could accomplish in the game. And Spiff, you just reached out to him on, on MySpace. My MySpace, yeah. I reached out to him, found him. He started sending me beats, and Lex would send me like a hundred beats. <laughs> like this kid was cranking these beats out of a fruit loose. He wouldn't even name the beats. There would be numbers: 11, 13, 12, 44, 15, 16, 17, 18. <laughs> so from those hundred beats, I fucking found the best fifty. Then from there, I cranked it down to like the best twenty beats that he had. In those best twenty beats, fucking Ace Hoods, fucking. Uh, What's the record Ace Hood had that was his big record? Hustle, Hustle hard, hard, yeah. Hustle Hard beat was in there. I didn't give it to him, but out of my 20, those were one of the beats that was like the best beats that I liked. He ended up getting it. You know, I don't know how, but he got it. But BMF was in there, Nine Piece, MC Hammer. Jesus. Fucking Meek Mill work. Uh, a lot of beats was in that first, that pack that I broke down. Ross, Lex Luger gave so many hits to so many different artists, but I always associate him with you. Tell me how MC Hammer came together. I actually was just riding through uh, L.A. We was going through Beat. Shout out to my little homie Smith. Yeah, Smith TV. Yeah, we was going through different beats. I had the driver come get me middle of the night type shit. I just wanted to look at mansions and (laughs) smoke the weed, let the windows down. I told him to drive me all the way up in the hills and rolled me by the richest people house. <laughs> and he, you know, that's what he was doing. And I just caught a zone. I, I was smoking good. The windows, you know, riding by. And I'm, I'm just like, yo, I got to describe, you know, what I feel. That's where MC Hammer comes from. Because, you know, I'm riding by them big ass houses. I'm like, MC Hammer lived in some shit like this. 
<laughs> and I just start rocking back and forth, and, and and really those those two records was uh, written within you know those few moments. Like I remember when the two record came out, all of my homeboys, you know, all of my friends were like, uh, "BMF's cool, man," but I like MC Hammer. I like MC. Everybody kept telling me MC Hammer was harder. Mm. You know, it was a better record. You know what I mean? And I, I couldn't hear it at the time. I'm like, man, y'all fucking dumb. BMF. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, but now that I listen to the sound, bro, like MC Hammer was BMS to look different from MC Hammer. MC Hammer is more aggressive. It's more Lex Luger. It's more hard in the paint. You know, BMF was the turn of like I feel like pop trap, if that makes sense. You yep. know what I mean? Like yeah. more mainstream trap music. Ross, when we had you up here, you talked about your affinity for the locks and and how you fucked with them because you know they're from the mud like you. But they were, you know, by by B.I.G.'s side, you know, they had that relationship there and you always respected their pen and their voice and and their movement. So when it comes to this album and you get Styles and Jada on there, what did that mean to you? Oh, that was, you know, let me know what it was. And not only did I get them to collaborate, but it felt good. It felt good. It didn't feel like nobody did me no favors. BMF may have the most lasting impact of, of any song off Teflon, Don, even 10 years in, thanks to the enormous hook and a killer verse by our friend Styles P, who we got on the phone. SP, what do you think when those Lex Luger 808s came through and you heard Ross say, I think I'm Big Meech, Larry Hoover? Oh, but I didn't, I didn't hear the hook when he sent it to me. Oh, really? Nah. It was just an empty beat. Yeah, it was an empty beat. And I love the beat, though. I usually don't, um, I'm more of an East Coast kind of beat dude, but that particular beat I really liked. This song was on the Albert Anastasia mixtape first, and then on yeah. Teflon Don, the album. What did you think when it first like hit the streets and people reacted to it? I thought it was a pretty fucking big song. I mean, it was, it was hitting in the hoods really hard fast. I didn't know that it was going to be that big, though, to be honest. I just thought it was going to be a huge, huge, um... Hood joint, and then at, at in the beginning, then I noticed it wasn't dying down, and it kept rising. So then it got to mainstream. So I knew it was a a big joint. Where's like the biggest place that this song took you? Hmm, I can't really remember. I've been a lot of play. I've been a lot of places and have done the song and um, a lot of awards and award shows and shit like that so i don't know I, I like to go with i think the people felt it and that was the beautiful thing like you know what i'm saying i think it was a a, a ill collaboration y'all know me i don't really get caught up in the other shit um and the publishing check of course <laughs> <laughs> the greatest that's the greatest that's the greatest part of it all <laughs> you want to be honest <laughs> <laughs> but the publishing took me publishing checks from that takes me a lot of places so it's cool Spiff what do you remember about Styles P getting on BMF the craziest thing too is that Styles P was never supposed to be on that record really I by mistakenly sent that beat to Styles P because again Lex Luger names these beats the same and he there was one that was like I think it was beat 11 
and I sent the wrong 11. <laughs> and when he, sent it, when he sent it back to me, he was on BFF. And we're like, oh, shit. That's crazy. Like, so if I didn't make that mistake, Styles P would have never been on that record. That's nuts. Wow. But I was like, I was like Ross, it ain't, it ain't nothing. I can just get the acapella and have Lex Luger make a new beat to that. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll still we'll have Styles on a different record. But Styles had killed it so legendary. Ross was like, nah, he bodied it. We keeping him on this one. So that's history. Lex, today in 2020, how often do you hear BMF playing out of a car stereo on the radio when you go to a club or whatever? Oh, that's crazy. Yo, that's crazy. So I'm back in Virginia with my parents, you know what I mean? Like, well, not living with my parents, but, you know, around the same area as my parents. Yeah. And um, my mom will, like, fucking text me. Like, it'll be 10 o'clock at night. It'll be 9 o'clock in the morning. She'll be like, DMS is on the radio. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, like, it just came out, dude. It's crazy, man. So I, I hear quite often, man. I'll be in the car, and they'll just drop it, you know, every now and then. It's a good feeling. My kids, you know, hear it. Like, oh, dad, she, you know, they know my tag now. So yep. it's, it's a great feeling, man. And I do hear it quite often. It's amazing because. Uh, growing up, I always wanted to be one of those guys who had the song that, like, like yeah, like Lil John did the Yeah record for Usher. You'll never stop hearing that record. You know, I always wanted a record like that. You'll never stop hearing it. For the third iteration of the Maybach Music Series produced by the Justice League, Ross got Erica Badu, T.I., and another one-third of the locks, the aforementioned Jadakiss, who we got on the phone Jada, what comes to mind on the 10th anniversary of Teflon Don? Am I on the album? No. <laughs> are we on it? You are on Maybach Music 3, which a lot of people call the uh, the greatest of, of the entire franchise. What? Yeah, That's yeah, dope. yeah. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you remember about uh, young Rick Ross, four albums in? Um... I just remember he was hungry. I remember meeting him early before he got to the status that he's at now. He ran up on me on Ocean one day and said he wanted to work with me. And I was like, dope, let's do it. Then we end up linking up, you know, years later. And we never spoke about that. So that's what's ill about this whole interview. You know what I mean? For the anniversary of Teflon Don, but. You know, he's my brother. He's somebody that I call to get on songs. He he never tells me no. He sends them back quick, and it's always quality. Shows up for the video, and it's the same thing with me. When you when you think back about certain lines that you have on there, bunch of wax dummies, all you guys gonna melt, live for your kids, die for yourself, things like that. What what headspace were you in with something so cinematic, uh, like like this song? Uh, when I did the Maybach music, you know, the other ones previous to that was so strong. You know, you just know you got to always show up. And I remember Khaled, he was calling me back to back like my parole officer. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss, I need you to do this verse. And um, I actually did that verse in D-Block. They came up, they came up town and we knocked it out. They came up, I did it right there and they was able to take it and go mix it and that, you know, things of that nature. So I knocked it out. Who from uh from Maybach Music Group came up to D Block? Everybody. Khaled was there. Khaled and his whole staff. Ross wasn't there, but Khaled and everybody else was there. You had Khaled walking up the stairs 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pass Cal like the Carpenters. Up. That's how that's how ambitious he was to get the first. <laughs> The stairs didn't even bother him. He, I don't even think he noticed where, how much stairs he went up. Is Khaled in that situation as animated, like over like dope lines and a, and a hot verse, as one would think? Yeah, Khaled is very animated. You know what I mean? When before he, before whenever he needs you to do a feature, when he calls you, it's very animated. But it's sincere animation, so you gotta appreciate that. And I think that's why. He achieved the success that he got right now. And when you when you talk about someone like Ross, who you know isn't from New York, but he is a wordsmith, um, what do you think when you have to like you know be on a track with someone like Ti, someone like Rick Ross? I mean, I, I, I treat everybody equally, so that ain't the question to ask me. I, I don't care if you Joe Small or you Joe with a hundred Grammys. I'm gonna go at the song the same with the same anticipation but um you know those are the big those are the big the big wigs from down bottom so you always gotta appreciate it and always gotta come with your a game no matter who you're getting on the feature with but you know shout and respect to those guys i got good relationship with ross nti with everybody in the south i was fortunate to be down there early and be on all them little john albums and d for real joints and Eight ball and MJG early, so I, I established a down south relationship early. So when Ross and Ti and everybody else came up, it was already it was already alley oop off the backboard for me. When you hear JD Kiss come in, I'm all you wax dummies, are you gonna melt? <laughs> no, no, you know when when I heard that, it just was like, whoa! I I, I really feel if the big homie was here. The big homie would have got on this for Rose, like, like that, like this, this damn near the closest I could get to big. You know what I'm saying, Jada and Puff. Well, and and you have Clark Kent on this album as well. Most definitely. So there's a lot of Shout biggie connections Clark. there, yeah. So so Clark comes through and surprises you with a beat that he tailor made for you. This wasn't something that he was shopping to everybody else. This wasn't like he had somebody, you know, just random in mind or he was just going to sell a beat. How does it feel to get, you know, God's favorite DJ, somebody who's produced for the greats, somebody who found the greats and linked up the greats to then bless you with something like Super High? Oh, man, that was that was a special moment. Clark Kent, he, 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 he a special dude. He'll always be a special dude. I just spoke to him maybe two weeks ago. I, I uh, mentioned his name and uh, on a verse I did on the homie Freddie Gibbs project. Mm. You know, he just, uh, Clark, just a special motherfucker. And when he gave me that super high, it felt like a motherfucker was playing the goddamn, um, the guitar in the goddamn, do, 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 do. <laughs> I was like, yo, you know, it was just, it was just a, a vibe, man. And just to get F. Gary Gray to direct the video. Big. You know, I got Shorty to be in the video. She was always just a high school crush. Mm. And, um, you know, um, everything was just coming together, man. It was just a special moment. When you were over here the last time and we had that hour and a half long, hour, you know, hour and 45 minute conversation, we touched on so many things. Tears of Joy was the one thing that when you walked out the store, I was like, God damn it. Like, I wanted to get into that one song because that song, I think, above any other one, 
gets into your mind, your passion, like who you really are. And it and it speaks to me, especially now during these times, when you're hearing Bobby Seale at the top of that song, when you hear the the way that you're spitting and what you're saying, that song I think is is like might be for me your best song ever. And that's that's a um a highly respectable opinion. And that record most definitely is a special record to me. And when you speak of the current climate in the world we live in today, when you hear that Bobby Seale intro, for a lot of people, it's more relevant than others. But for me, that shit been there. That rage been there. That's been there. You understand? That's, you know, um, watching um, unarmed black men lose their lives. I've, I've been witnessing that my whole life. So that's why that was before it was popular. Before I was speaking of that then. And that's what you talk, when you talk about records like Tears of Joy, that's when you, you know, it's really coming from a, a special place. Me going to request CeeLo to sing that chorus. I would, you know, I got my, my respect for CeeLo so high. When he released that Goody Mob album, that first album, mm. coming, coming on the heels of Outkast, and the message that they sent, that shit was so strong, so positive to me. That was a real brotherhood type of vibe, and I wanted to see if we could recreate that. And that's what I think we did. Well, talk about growing up. Um, what did you know about the Black Panthers? What did being black mean? What was your, your understanding of the message? And how proudly black and loudly black were you growing up? Man, it, it shit is as proud as um, I believe you could be. That's why I always held my head the highest. That's why I always um, expressed being a boss. Because me being a black man, I understood the power that came with that. I understood the certain things that I would have to, um, you know, perfect. But it's a lot of power that come with that. And I understood that. And that was really my mind frame. So when, when I always spoke of being untouchable, when I spoke of self-made, when I spoke of being a boss, that's really uh, somebody that's, that can create a dynasty without the approval of another. And then even on the song, you get into stuff when you say, I got to represent for Emmett Till, you know? Most definitely. It's, 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 it's extremely clear. It's extremely clear. It's extremely powerful. I'm glad, man, me and CeeLo was, you know, able to create that that record. And for people that go back and listen to it now, you know, hopefully they'll uh, appreciate it. Well, and how about, you know, shout out to No ID who who made that track. And can you take us through the origins of that? Because I believe you were in Hawaii with Kanye for yep. My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And the song was originally supposed to go to J. Cole, but I mean, well, you talk about it. Well, it was it was one of those records that, we was out in uh, Hawaii, you know, a lot of different brains, brainstorming uh, concepts for Ye, uh, going through production and, you know, it was different rooms, different producers. And I went in a no ID room and, you know, I just sat down quietly just listening to music and it wasn't about who he was. It wasn't no big introductions. I was just listening. And, um, when we came across that beat, that was one that I, I sat to the side because there's certain beats that, you know, if you come up with a concept, yo, I'm going to come up with something for that. 
and uh, I took that Saturday to the side. And uh, I want to say uh, uh, when I brought it up and discussed it, you know, it really wasn't nothing that caught anybody ideas. And we, you know, moved on, did other things. And uh, so I brought that up later on, asked no ID, I need this record, homie, if it's possible. <laughs> and he, he said, most definitely, you got my blessings and shit. You know, um, I did what I did. Well, is there something about the way that No ID, you know, swings a beat or the samples that he gets or, or the way the drums hit? Like, what is it about him? Or is it like, you know, his presence that, that brings something to a record? It's his gift. And I think producers like him make that the clearest. It's not, he's not a, a speaker. I mean, you know, the entire day you could be in a, sitting in the studio for hours with no idea and you haven't heard him say one word. Hmm. Um, and to me, that's when your talent speak the loudest. And so the soul that was on that record, it was like, yo, this shit will make you cry. That's where the whole title comes from, the whole vibe comes from. Going back to Hawaii, you and Kanye are, are going back and forth. You have this, this creativity in the air. Um, what leads to Live Fast, Die Young? Um, really, that was just one of those vibes. You know, it was, it was a different time. Niggas was really living fast um, and in a different space. I know Ye was moving fast, you know what I'm saying? I was doing my thing. And um, that shit just really just, you know, came about. I ain't gonna even trip. Did you guys have, like, a bunch of other rough drafts that, that led to that? Or or was that, like, this is the one? Nah, you know, I got a, I got a few Kanye records in my... I got a few Kanye records in my, in my laptop. Let's say that. Let's say DJ Sam Sneak. He got a few unreleased joints that we do have. And, you know, of course, we'll never release them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we may play, you know, a little something one day. You never know. Do you feel like in that 2009-2010 era that you and him had something special where you spoke like a different language and you could just like rock together like no one else could? Yeah. And and I and I that that go back to when we first met when we both were nobodies when we both were nobodies I could have I probably could have bought a Kanye beat for fifteen hundred dollars. Damn. So when you yeah. go down to Hawaii and you're part of you know his whole camp down there and and people are just coming up with ideas and tossing lines around and inspiring each other, had you ever been in a in a situation like that creatively? Yes, I have. I have. I have, you know, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was a long time before it was cool to just, you know, disclose who you wrote raps for and wrote rhymes for. It was a lot of that going on. And just so happened, you know, me being from Miami, I was one of the few people that, um, that the city really knew, understood hip hop and could write for anybody and could collab with anybody. And when different artists came to the city, you know, I would always wind up in the session. Actually, how did you meet uh, Puff? You know, Puff been in Miami a long time. Mm. So, uh, just running in the, bumping into him in the clubs and shit. I forgot really when it was an official introduction. But just bumping into homie in the clubs. You know, he knew I was a local artist. 
So he always showed local artists love. You know, he had them bought a, a crib down there, you know, um, and, you know, that's when that bad boy shit was on a, a major run. He always took time out and showed love to the local artists. That's something that um, I always respected. Well, yeah, yeah. and what do you think of, of all the rappers moving down to, to Miami and that becoming like a hot spot? So Fat Joe and Nori and Wayne and, and, uh, and everyone just like... I, always, I loved it. I loved it. I always met, you know, artists and, you know, motherfuckers coming to the table with something other than just they plate. Um, I always appreciated that. And that's what Miami's for. My, Miami is a beautiful motherfucking spot. And that's what it's for. Mm. Bring y'all rich ass down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how, how many records did you like have to really whittle down to get to the 11 that ended up on the project? Oh, man, I couldn't even tell you. It's not, and it's not about the amount, you know, it's really just about the quality, yeah, the direction. And, you know, when you're in the zone such as that, what I was in at that time frame, you know, you had the greatest producers in the game giving you their best work. And that's why artists, they better make sure they acknowledge these producers in this production because that's what really elevates your sound to where it goes. That's when the, them as a whole, as a as a collective, are putting together their best shit, and they all on the same page because it's a it's an unspoken language that's in the air, and they all know when they'll all get to showcase each other's, you know, their best shit on a project, and that's when it it really goes to that next level. So. Mm. I don't have no idea how much shit I did. Well, I, I think that's that's super dope of you as an artist to give, you know, that credit that's due to the producers because, um, you know, they're helping paint that picture. It's not just the lyrics. It really is the beat. But you pay attention to the the cinematic, to the to the orchestral, to, to all the elements that go into a song. And you pay attention to the post-production. And I think that that really shows itself in this project, especially... With the with the Justice League stuff, I think all across the board, this is a bigger sound. Would you say that that this is separated from the previous projects because of the time and effort you put into making those tracks like beefier? I think um, I think it's a final result of me establishing myself as an artist and and having some of those incredible producers become fans of my work and get excited of of what I created when we, and when we actually sit down together, that's the end result. Let's talk about your collaboration with Jay-Z, track number two, Freemason. What did you want to get out of a record like this? The, the conversations you guys had about all the rumors that you saw concerning the Illuminati or what people thought of the Masons or the idea that an entertainer would be able to get a leg up thanks to to some secret cabal. Man, that shit was funny. <laughs> Man, that shit was really like, yo, you know, it's like after you work twenty years to get somewhere, motherfucker say you want you sold your soul. And I was like, yo, if I was going to sell my soul, I would have sold that bitch 20 <laughs> years ago. Not only that, 
My father would be here to see this shit. Yeah. My dead homies would be here to see this shit. I must have sold my shit for 80% off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but... Yeah. No one online wants a nuanced conversation, you know? You know, so... It was just one of those things, man. People was just watching me continually and gradually progress. And so... uh Different motherfuckers come up with different conspiracy theories. Well, let me ask, who has better food, the Illuminati or Puff? <laughs> oh, man. I never got to sit down with the Illuminati yet. <laughs> so you're a busy guy. Jay is a busy guy. I imagine this is something that took a while to sort of come together. No, actually, actually, the concept for the record, I actually told him he was performing at Madison Square. And um, there's actually a photo that circulates with me and him leaning against the wall. And that's when I was actually telling him the concept about the record. And, you know, he just, uh, I played him the beat. I'm like, yo, this motherfucker just listening to the beat uh, 10 minutes before he hit stage. He went, rocked the concert, shit, knocked the verse out, knocked the verse out right afterwards and I just was saying to myself yo did he write it on stage <laughs> while he was performing <laughs> or in the car on the way to the studio you know when did he do it either way you know it was just one of those things man that, that, meant, that meant a lot to me he's just different yeah like this is also the first album I think that you you stopped writing like you you started doing everything off the top of your head is that true Nah, I still would, I still would jot down a lot of things. What I do do is, what I do do is have a certain vibe. Let's say when the, when it's a beat that I connect, let's say BMF or MC Hammer. Um, nine times out of ten, when the beat come on and I start freestyling to it, nine times out of ten, that first forty five seconds will always be my first verse, the chorus. And then I go back and I, you know, write the last two verses or whatever I'm going to do. But all that shit, that other shit that I think I'm, that's just me just saying some shit that's, and it fit good. Ross, generally speaking, when, when you sit down to play a record for an artist, do you have like a specific one in mind for them or do you give them like options? No, I got some specific. It's not the and it's not a uh, it's not a flea market. It's just walking <laughs> through looking for sales and all that. No, this is something specific. This custom made, one of one. Yeah. Well, then, okay. If anybody ever turns you down, does that hurt at all? Because like you did think of them for that, or or are you just like fuck it? There, I'll get somebody else, or I won't get anybody at all. No, I just understand everybody not you know, like me as an artist. Um, um, it's a lot of times an artist may not really naturally be able to catch a vibe or they may not feel comfortable on a certain record or, or at a certain pace or after something you've done. And I, and I can respect that. But I'm an artist that if you pull a beat up and that's what you want me to do, the challenge of you asking me to do it, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a knock it down. 
I'm not going, oh, man, I can't catch that vibe. It's too slow. It's too fast, you know? I'm a talented writer. I'm finna do it right now, as a matter of fact. Mm, yeah. Sure. When was the first time that you actually felt like a really talented writer? Mm. You know, it could be after writing for myself for years, but getting in the studio and, for for an example, um, having an idea for Trina to do, collaborate with Ludacris. Mm. Uh, everything's gonna be all right. Yeah. Um, I got I got the beat, and it took me maybe ten minutes to just put the idea together, and she did it, and that was a big record for. Her. So once I began to know I could write for females, not just for for other dudes, which was easy, but I began writing for other females. Then I began, you know, putting together the the R and B choruses, just the concepts for the chorus. That's just like Aston music. Mm. Um, it was a huge record. We know that. And it may have felt like it was natural or simple, but I had never got two different people to split a chorus that was singing R&B. You know, like we kind of like talked about like the, the lushness, the luster, the luster of the record. Um, I mean, it's, it's become kind of a, it's like a goofy idiom to be like, oh, it's a movie. You know, that's just a thing that people say all the time. And it has, it's sort of become meaningless. I prefer Zuvi. <laughs> well, I promise you, I promise you, Aston Martin music, that's an actual movie. Yes. Like, that's, a, that's an actual bona fide movie. And also, it's a very important record, not just for Ross, but it's also a really important record for Drake. Yeah. yeah. Because it shows the comfort that Drake is going to have essentially crossing the aisle and kind of doing his Drake stuff around, you know, rappers who are much more straightforward rapping rappers yeah. than, than he is. And not that he never worked with artists like that before, but Ross peak Ross and Drake still kind of in his ascent. It's just a hugely important record for both of them. Chris, what do you remember about um, young Drake getting on Aston Martin music? Oh, I still remember the video for Aston Martin and uh, the video for Aston Martin, you know, shot in Miami. You know, we were in in what's now like the Wynwood district of uh, Miami doing certain scenes. And, you know, Drake was he was he was the youngin coming up you know, in that in that video. No beard. You know, his swag was still on crazy. And you knew he was he was, you know, going to be one of the biggest stars in the game just based on the records that he had released prior. But it was just an incredible feeling being at that video, that record on the album. Like when we all heard the completed album, everyone knew like, okay, this was gonna be a single. Yeah. Without a doubt. Just based on the music and the and the features, Drake and Chrisette Michelle, like that was, you know, classic Rose speaking, you know, speaking that that boss Don shit at its finest. Ross, around that time, like you and, and Diddy start hanging out a lot. And so I know that the 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 night that you like brought him on as a manager, you went over to his apartment, you guys were watching Purple Rain. Can you like set the scene for that conversation? It was just uh really at that time I was really, you know, doing my thing. I was just really um, just, just really wanted to get that hustle really going, set my label up, doing other shit. So those were the conversations I was having with Puff. 
and then he was just letting me know, man, yeah, uh, most definitely, you know, um, give me all the advice I need, woo, 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 this and that, you know what I'm saying? So um, I believe that was the beginning of us, you know, kicking off that Ciroc Boys venture as well. Me repping Ciroc, me wanting to get into the, the alcohol industry. I'm like, oh, it's a billion dollar industry, homie. I need to watch, see how this <laughs> shit moves. <laughs> basically, you know, that's what it was. He had a little uh, a private party back at his crib. Had a few sexy bitches come over, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, we were sipping this sort of rock, you know. You know, he turned everything into a photo shoot, so we, you know, we capitalized on the moment. And I said, I get it, I understand what's going on. This how you hustle. This how you move. Everywhere you go, you capitalize on this shit. Everywhere we go, the product there. Every, I get it, and it's the reward. That's when we was at the top, damn near the top floor, in uh, the building, and you know. The drapes came over and we was right over Central Park and I began writing in my head right then. I wasn't even thinking about them bitches. I was already, <laughs> oh man, I get it. I know what this is. You know what I'm saying? And it was just, it was just a great moment for me. I learned a lot from the big homie. Puff. Well, was it a given that Puff would end up on the album or do you feel like you had to sell him on that and, and like push that song for, for him to be on? Nah, at that, you know, this is 2010. At that time, Rose could have got anybody to do anything, you know, music-wise. But like I said, I didn't want it. I just wanted it to feel right. I didn't want no favors. I just wanted everybody to respect the craft and what I was doing. You know what I'm saying? And the homie respected that. And he showed me that by, um, you know, breaking bread with me and other ventures as well. So I feel out, you know, that was natural. John, do you think that... Puff was instrumental in Rick Ross crafting or cracking his image. I think that image was already on the path. You'll have to remind me, and during this time period, at some point, did Puff implicitly acknowledge that Ross was essentially drawing from the Biggie playbook? Yeah, he, he called Puff, him, yeah, the next the he, next Biggie, yeah. yeah. Right, he did verbalize that, right? Yes. But I do think that Ross was already on that path. I don't think that the Ross of 2000 and six could have done a record like this yeah you know you had to have deeper than rap you had to have the hits that were building well yeah because you have to assume you know the throne you can't just like you know show up one day like you have to get to that place and i i do i do believe that he had his sights on that because he always <laughs> wanted to be close with the locks and he always wanted to be close with puff yes. and he gets clark kent to do production on this and it's like let me get as close to that bad boy biggie era as possible yeah and it's also worth you know we talked a minute ago about obviously the 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 credibility concerns that ross had been uh addressing in the prior album cycle yeah. for this record um what better cloak of credibility than to kind of swaddle yourself in like the o ode to biggie you know than to swaddle yourself in peak bad boy to have diddy on on the record talking that like signature diddy shit yeah, yeah. you know that's you know i i i went back to look at the track listing of the record and i had sort of forgotten just how many guests were on this record a lot it feels like <laughs> such a right but it feels like such a signature ross record right uh but i had forgotten how many guests and and obviously that was like a very uh normal thing for the time but it's also really 
it's it's a strategic decision by someone who I think understood that maybe he had to shore up his defenses a little bit here and there because there might be lingering credibility questions from the previous time. What did you think about his his uh, affinity for, for Biggie and wanting to be close to the locks because you guys were close to Big or wanting to be close to Puff because he was close to Big? Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I think that was dope. I think that's fan homage. Like I say, he's a student of the game, student of the craft. And um, he's trying to chase greatness. You know, you start off the project with um, I'm, not, I'm a not a star. And then, like, it's so good, but then it takes on the whole second life when Lil Wayne takes it for John. Can you talk about, like, what happened there? Uh, that was just one of those records that um, that was getting a lot of rotation in New York City while Lil Wayne was locked up. And I believe he was at Clinton at the time. Mm. And he was hearing that shit all day and all night. And he called me. We actually spoke once while he was incarcerated. And uh, he told me when he come home, he want to do a record just like that one. He said, fuck with it. He loved it. And it made sense to me when I got off the phone. I'm like, yo, homie, I know where he at in a dark space. And he hearing that, fuck that shit. I'm not a star. Don't look at me as a star. I don't want to be acknowledged as a star. I'm a hustler. And, and, and you know, he kept it real short. It was a real short conversation. I told him, hold his head. Boom, boom, boom. You know what I'm saying? Woo, woo, woo. And as soon as he came home, we kept our words and we, we, we knocked it out. I gave him something just like in that same vibe. And he, he loved it. So we talked the last time you were here about how much you love R&B music, and, and you have some heavy hitters on here, obviously, uh, Neo, Raphael Sadiq, Erica Badu. Um, well, first of all, did you watch the Jill Scott and Erica Badu versus? I did not. Ooh, Ross. <laughs> you missed out. It was it was amazing. Uh what kind of relationship did you have with Erica Badu, and, and, and what was that phone call like to secure her for this project? You know, she, uh, the few times we came across each other, I always express, I always express my, my love, my respect, and my admiration for, you know, just the way she moved and carried herself as a black queen to me. You know, I told her I had so much love for her. And, uh, you know, she was always just smiling, keep it, you know, keep it going. And she, um, I forgot what happened either or first, but uh, she reached out to me to do the window seat remix. Mm. Uh, you know, I did that for, we filmed a video, she was direct, and it was just a cool, it was just a cool vibe, you know what I'm saying? And I, I always just kept her contacting. I felt like uh, the time was right. Um, on that Maybach music, I felt like the time was right, you know, like I said, I ain't want to rush no favors or have no records feel like no favors. And all my shit is pretty much uh, for one person when it's in my mind. Yeah. And and she did that for me, and it was so beautiful. I loved it. You know, one of the most underrated tracks on this album, but certainly a standout, is All the Money in the World with Raphael Sadiq. And I, I love how open you are. You're talking about your father's death, and 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 you sing. And, and I want to know how purposeful was that? Yeah, everything was, uh, everything was, um, that most definitely was the plan. It was. And I, I, I think, 
I think that's what makes this project very special and exceptional in in going through it is that and clearly when you read hurricanes and and shout out once again to neil um and to you for for writing it but you 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 get a lot more context and you can listen to the music once more and be like yo that's the story behind that i think that what makes this project super special is that you are revealing you are open in ways you are vulnerable and and this is a testament to who you are as a human being and once again, that's an opinion that I highly respect. And um, another thing I, I love about the album is um, the level of balance, the production on the heavy side, and then it, it goes on the, the sophisticated soft side. Um, yeah, I love it, baby. Is there anything that, like, you know, I know that we're here celebrating it. Um, is there anything that you would either add or take away, you know, 10 years on? No, I wouldn't change anything. Chris, Teflon Don is Rick Ross's fourth solo album, um, all at Def Jam. You had three number ones prior. What was the feeling inside the building in terms of you have these records that are just, you know, killing the streets? Was there an effort for you guys to push up the date? Did you think that you should push it back? Um, were you afraid of any other like releases coming out at the same time? And, and how did you guys look at it from a marketing perspective? I mean, it was always a fine line in terms of do you push it up? Do you push it back? You know, in terms of really trying to understand the ultimate timing to pay off when that album dropped. And that was a pretty, you know, a pretty, you know, hot summer. I think M had just dropped, yep. you know, an album a couple weeks before and, you know, 2010 like m was still like at the pretty much top of his of his game if you will and you know his second and third weeks were still as big or close to as his first weeks you know so we we just worked really to just time time the release right in terms of uh the heat from those street records but then also you know we had super high with neo you know from on a radio standpoint you know hitting the radio charts and the radio side of the game. So ultimately it just became a fine line in terms of the date was predicated by the heat that we had on the streets, regardless of where a record was from a radio standpoint. And it felt right in terms of the timing to drop it. Chris, when you look back at, at Ross's uh, catalog, which album are you personally most proud of? Man, that's a that's a really hard question because I think I, I've been blessed to work on uh, what eight of Ross's albums. Man, um, you know all of which have been you know number ones. Um, but I, I man, I'd have to say it, it'd be hard for me. It's just one, but Teflon Don is definitely in my top three of Ross's all time you know, best albums. Um, I think the other two would be uh, God Forgives, I Don't, mm -hmm. and th and then uh, Mastermind. But Teflon Don is definitely, you know, it's, it's definitely one of my, most definitely, as you guys would say, <laughs> it's, most it's most definitely one of my favorite, my favorite albums. Ross, when we talk about this album, you can't forget about Jonathan Mannion's contributions, obviously coming back to collaborate on the cover. That's you with those sunglasses, and you can see the city and the skyline. 
when you when you look back at that packaging and you think back about that time and the rollout, what does that that period mean to you? Oh, once again, it's just the city in the background. You know, once again, it's the city in the background. You know, putting the city on my back, knowing what it means to me, even if nobody else knows what it what it represents. Going back to the title, Port of Miami. You know what that meant when I Port of Miami. Port, what the fuck is that? Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was the motherfuckers in Miami. Ain't no why I was titling it. You know, making it that, but. It's bigger than me, man. It's bigger than me, and it, it all makes sense one day. I mean, Ross is what's crazy is that Ross always could take you lyrically with bars on any level of any fucking lyrical rapper in the game. You know what I'm saying? And then he can, and then he was we were doing these these those trap street records that were just fucking lighting the shit up. Like it's crazy in, in my house, man. I got like the first Teflon Dine album that I brought that I never opened. You know what I mean? I just keep that one nice and filled up, man. That's, that's like a, a trophy for me. Ross is in the top five of all, you know, the greatest artists that come out of Def Jam. And that's, you know, past and present based on the consistency of his albums, you know, the dedication to music and culture and the fact that he's still doing it to this day. Ten years after this project drops, when you go back, if you listen to this record, what's one song that really speaks to you above all the others? Um, that may be that may be tears of joy. That may be tears of joy right now. Is is there a line on there that like that really like stands out to you? Because there's there's like every line just hits for me. Whether it's like talking about the Vacheron and a year ago, I didn't even know the bitches exist. You know, quarter milli for the motherfucker. The way you say no insurance on the motherfucker is just passion and power and, and humor. It's it's just everything. Um, and what's crazy is, and, and, and I have it on right now. I have the watch on right now. When you say keys open doors so I got to keep a set or like Biggie Smalls in the flesh living life after my death. I'm a lot of people threat like heavy lines. Every line, and I'm in it. I'm in it. You can hear that, and I th- I think that you know we're we're here to celebrate that project. We're here to celebrate you. Uh, we appreciate you as always, Rose. Stay safe down there. Love to you and yours. And uh, when this is all said and done, hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, we can't wait for you to come back and sit down in person and uh, and just chop it up. I'll be back real soon. I have some music for you real soon, and make sure. If you the one you get that Rona, make sure y'all go public, baby. <laughs> let's let's hope we don't get the Rona. Yeah. Of course not. Let's make sure we don't get the Rona. Yo, salute to you, Ross. Uh, take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Love. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, you want to find out more about us, I'm Eric with the curly hair. You are Jeff with the glasses. Together, we are It's The Real. No apostrophe, no spaces. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called A Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about what's going on with us. Where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com or, more interestingly, you can go to patreon.com slash itsthereal. Go there, support us, support this podcast. Let's keep this thing going. I know the times are tough right now for everybody, but uh, if you have anything to share, send it over. Wait, share, like, opinions or share, like, um, problems? 
Yeah. Or L- literally anything. Share passwords. If you if you <laughs> want to share your Netflix password with us, <laughs> let us know. It's the real yeah. com. I do want to mention real quick, we have brand new shirts available at it's the slash shop. Those of you who have pre-ordered them, they are being made right now and will be sent to you right after that. We're talking the uh, Uchiwali Zerbiak t-shirt. We're talking the Stone Cold Stunna t-shirt. And we're talking the Michelle Rich Homie Kwan t-shirt. All originals, all by Jeff, all available at itsthereal.com slash shop. Yes, we are also on Twitter at It's The Real and Instagram at It's The Real. And youtube.com slash it's the real sure are and now jeff is the time of the podcast where we love to shout people out who would you like to shout today i always you know like to shout out other people yes people who have uh you know been on the front lines of the pandemic people who have followed us or supported us totally everyone earned that everybody i i always shout people out yeah you do a great job of that who are you gonna shout out today Jeff? today i'm like fuck it i'm shouting myself out (laughs) it's it's my birthday week yeah uh, I'm shouting me out and me alone. And if I if, if people are like, oh, like it's so selfish of you to only shout out yourself. Yeah. I'd also like to shout out my twin brother Dan, who while not me, <laughs> looks enough like me. Sure. And uh, shares a lot with you. And he used to share a uh, a womb yes. with me. And so I'd like to shout him out. Uh, and by extension, me. Yeah. And I would like to shout both of you guys out because you not only uh, share a birthday, you not only shared a womb. Share this room right now. Dan is sitting right over there. Shout out to Dan. Happy birthday to you both. I wish you the best year yet. I sincerely do. These are tough times, guys. You have uh, elevated above and beyond what has been expected. And I think that you have brought a lot of sunshine to a lot of people's lives, including mine. So happy birthday to you both. Thank Um, you. Celebrate accordingly, however you would like. And uh, Well, the only thing that I do not want is to do a Zoom birthday party i think that zoom birthdays are the worst what about I, a surprise birthday zoom? if you surprise me with a birthday zoom i will be forever pissed <laughs> i do not want a birthday zoom Wait, i don't want it as Jeff, a surprise you are only one half of this birthday dan do you want a birthday zoom no, <laughs> yeah by the way of course dan <laughs> happy birthday to dan and jeff happy podcast day to all of you out there as always guys not for real for real sure sure we'll see you guys next time Brrr.